the certainty of your presence and commitment to us, Lord, is such an amazing thing. And we thank you for the assurance of the salvation that you have provided for us in Christ. As you speak to our human spirits by your Holy Spirit, and you bear witness to our human spirits, and you tell us that we are your sons and daughters, we just are so grateful for that. And we thank you for the purpose and the plan that you have for each of our lives. And we pray that this morning we might be further equipped and made aware of that purpose and plan. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Again, welcome this morning to Calvary Chapel. My name is Bill Holdridge, pastor here, one of a number of pastors. And I just have to tell you, I'm just so blessed to be your pastor. We've been having a great time. The Lord is good. Would you turn with your Bibles with me to Revelation, the 18th chapter this morning? Revelation chapter 18, or 17, I'm sorry, chapter 17. Some of you are thinking, he must have given us the wrong set of notes. No, it's chapter 17. The title of this message is really the theme of the chapter, The Judgment of the Great Harlot, verses 1 and 2. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. When Jesus taught his disciples the kingdom parables in Matthew 13, he told them that the sons of the kingdom, which would be the good seed, the good wheat, would be sown into the world during the age of the church. But also, the sons of the wicked one, the sons of the devil, would be sown into the world by the wicked one. And they would grow up together and in many ways look very much alike, to where it would be very difficult at times to tell the difference between the sons of the, of, of, of the Son of God, or the seed of the Son of God sown into the world, those people, or, and the others who are the uh, seeds sown by the wicked one. Very difficult to tell at times. And the disciples, you know, or the, uh, in the parable, you know, the, the statement is, Lord, do you want us to go and pull up the tares from the wheat? And the response was, no, let them both grow together until the harvest, and then the reapers will come, the angels will come, and they will make a separation. So what Jesus is talking about in the parable of the tares and the wheat, there in Matthew 13, he's talking about what will happen during this church age, this time frame in which we're living right now. And in the church age, there will be the false religious system that grows up, the sons of the wicked one, and there will be the true body of Christ that grows up, the sons of and the offspring of the Son of God. And 
there are times in which it's very difficult to distinguish between the two. We see the same thing in the parable of the leaven, which the woman hid in three measures of meal until all was leavened. There was going to be an intrusive influence into the kingdom of God during this age, a degrading, decomposing influence like yeast performs on dough. And that would happen during this age. He gave the parable of the mustard seed, that uh, it's the smallest of all of the seeds, but when it grows, it becomes a tree and the birds of the air lodge in its branches. Well, the mustard seed parable is also about the same thing. There's an unnatural growth and an unnatural development of the kingdom in this age. Mustard seeds produce plants, but not trees. So, therefore, when a mustard seed becomes a tree, it's an unnatural growth and development of that seed. And the birds of the air in the parables always refer to Satan and his angels. So the devil and his angels will find a comfortable place to lodge in the branches of this unnatural development of the kingdom throughout the ages. The unnatural development of the kingdom throughout the ages, of course, is the false church. The tares sown among the wheat. The things that Jesus said would take place. And that's what chapter 17 is dealing with as well. It's dealing with the emergence of and the judgment of this great harlot. It's a religious sister system. She's a whore. She's a woman. She's a religious harlot. She's one who comes upon the scene most prominently early in the tribulation period after the age of the church is completed. And this great harlot, which already has a beginning in it, uh, will lead the entire world astray into idolatry, into a one-world religious system prior to the announcement of the Antichrist that he wants the whole world to worship him. So during the first three and a half years of the seven years of tribulation, which are coming, yet future, this religious movement will gain such uncomparable momentum that the whole world will be deceived by this woman's attempts to deceive the whole world. In the book of Exodus, Israel was warned not to make any other gods other than to worship the one and the true God. Because if they did, they would end up playing the harlot with those gods. False religion, false worship has always been compared by God in the word to spiritual harlotry, going into a spiritual or religious prostitute, harlot, in order to participate in what she offers. There's an entire Old Testament book that is about that very specific subject, the book of Hosea. It's dedicated to the message that Israel had played the harlot with other gods. That's what this chapter is about the harlot and her seductions and her final judgment. 
So the description or the announcement of the judgment of the great harlot uh, starts in verses 1 and 2. The description starts with the, with the idea that she sits on many waters. Now what is that referring to? That means she has great influence over many people. Now I'm not pulling that interpretation out of the air. If you look at verse 15, John is told that the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So this harlot sits on many waters. She sits uh, and has great influence on many, many people that are living in the world at that time. Peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. But also we read in verse 2 that with her the kings of the earth commit fornication. So what that is talking about, of course, is the fact that she has great influence, this whore, this false religious system, in the geopolitical realm. Kings and world leaders and the nations that follow them are infatuated with what she offers, caught up in the movement, and all of the things that she is telling them that they must do. It will be a system that will embrace every religion as being equally valid and as being the same. It will be a system that eliminates Jesus Christ and the historic faith of Christianity completely from it. It will be a system that is idolatrous to the core. It will be a system that will be very compatible with what we see going on today in our world. Already, the beginnings of this kind of thing are pervasive and are spreading rapidly everywhere we look. The beginnings of a one-world religious system are with us today. And she will take it to the nth degree. But this whore will only have influence for three and a half years on that level. It also says in verse 2 that she will make the inhabitants of the earth drunk with the wine of her fornication or her harlotries. So instead of reflecting Jesus Christ, this harlot, this false religious system, which is surfacing now and which will culminate during the tribulation period, this harlot is uh, not focusing on Christ at all, but upon this unchristian, anti-Christian religious system. Instead of talking about the atonement and the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world and the fact that we're all sinners and we need a Savior, instead of focusing on that, the harlot will focus on other messages that make people feel good and satisfied. People will have itching ears. They have itching ears today, heaping to themselves teachers, but even more so during that age, people will have itching ears and will want this kind of worship as they do uh, to even today. Instead of speaking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that he bodily rose three days later after having been crucified for our sins. The harlot will deny the reality of the historic resurrection of Christ. 
Instead of speaking about being filled with the Holy Spirit, there will be the emphasis on spiritual experience and all of the things that can be had through her system. It's just religion to the core. And I think that those who insist that Christianity is not a religion by saying that Christianity is a relationship, I like that designation. I like that comparison because I think it's true. Christianity is at its core an encounter with God through Jesus Christ, his son. It's an ongoing relationship. I mean, Jesus, if he were to define it, which he did in John 15, he said, live in me and I in you. That's the essence of the Christian life. And it begins when one places his or her personal faith in the sufficient and completed work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead. And it has full confidence in the Bible as being God's word. From Genesis to Revelation, this is God's word. It doesn't just contain God's word, it is God's word. It doesn't just contain truth, it is the truth. And we don't preach from the Bible, we try to teach the Bible. That's our aim, that's our goal. So this false system is very seductive because it eliminates things which are most difficult for people that don't want Christ in their lives to embrace. Karl Marx said in his famous quote, religion is the opiate of the people. Religion drugs people was his point uh, to the place where they're crying out for another solution. And that's going to be really the methodology of this whore, is to drug the people, drunk, make them drunk with the wine of her fornication. For some reason, I was thinking about the song that has the greatest melody, and it's so easy to sing, and it just catches you up in this wonderful vibe until you listen to the words. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. That'll be the theme song, maybe, for the whore. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. No religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. And that's what the world thinks so many times, is that if you could just get religion out of the equation, then we'd have peace. Well, this whore is going to offer religion and a false peace at the same time. So we see this movement. We see it taking place. We see this momentum right before our very eyes today. So he carried me away, verse 3, into the spirit, into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her head, or on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled 
with great amazement. So the woman is further described. In verse 3, she's described as sitting on a scarlet beast full of names of blasphemy. In other words, the beast was full of the names of blasphemy with seven heads and ten horns. That is a description of Antichrist. It's a description of actually three ideas in one individual or greater idea. The seven heads and ten horns imagery speaks clearly from Revelation 13 of the beast, the Antichrist. But it also speaks clearly, the seven-headed, ten-horned beast of the devil from Revelation 12, verses 3 and 9. The same language is used, speaking of the devil. And it's referring to the global government which is under the Antichrist control, Revelation 13, 1 through 3, and then, as we'll see in this chapter, verses 7 through, or verses 9 through 17. So you've got in one idea, one concept of the seven-headed, ten-horned beast, you've got the Antichrist as an individual, uh, a specific man, the man of sin, Jesus said that he would be the prince that was to come. We've got the global government which comes under his control, which is referred to in the book of Revelation as well as in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. And you've also got the devil, which is behind all of this, giving fuel and power and motivation and ideas to it. All of it kind of culminates in this idea of the seven-headed, ten-horned beast, and this woman is sitting on this beast in a prominent position, a position of favor. And we see also in verse 4, that this, or verse 3, that this woman is uh, connected with great blasphemy. So the mixing of the world's religions. She wears, as we see in verse 4, purple, scarlet vestments, gold, and has a golden cup of abominations. She's very, very wealthy, very, very affluent, this woman is, which speaks, of course, of the fact that worldly religion is big business indeed. There's a lot of wealth involved with it. There's a lot of wealth connected to it, and it will also be true uh, during this time when the whore comes to her greatest heights. This imagery of the golden cup is found in a prophecy of Jeremiah in chapter 51 as well, where it says, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine, therefore the nations are deranged. Babylon has suddenly fallen and has been destroyed. So the golden cup is connected with an ancient prophecy by Jeremiah concerning Babylon. And we also see in verse 5 that this Babylon the Great is the mother of all religious harlots. She is the mother of harlots and of the abomination of the earth. In other words, this great harlot, this great whore, spiritual whore, is the mother of all spiritual harlots. She has given birth to all spiritual harlotries, 
to all false religious systems. And all we have to do to demonstrate this and to show it biblically is to go back to the book of Genesis. And there's a reference in your notes. You can follow this up later. But in Genesis chapter 10, we have the table of nations. Archaeologists and cultural anthropologists have studied that table of nations in Genesis 10 very carefully. And they have determined that it's an incredible statement about how the nations came to be and how different people groups came to be scattered and be located in various locations, including the idea of the continental drift, which divided the continents into places where specific people groups lived in different geographical regions. All of that's in Genesis chapter 10. But one of the things that is mentioned in Genesis chapter 10 is this individual by the name of Nimrod. Nimrod is described there as being the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom, among other places, was Babel, but it was located in the land of Shinar, which is modern-day Iraq. It's where Babylon was located, modern-day Iraq, and all of the influence from Babylon and Babel itself came from that region. And Nimrod was the king over that kingdom that was located there in the area of Shinar, and his kingdom was called uh, Babel, uh, and it had to do with a very false religious system. And you remember what happened in Genesis chapter 11. They built a tower, and its height reached up into the heavens. And with that tower, of course, they were practicing occultic religions and astrology, seeking to eliminate any need from God of God in human society. And God judged it. He judged the whole system. And he did it very simply, very easily, and very quickly by confusing their languages so that no one that was on that scene could communicate with one another. One guy would be talking in Chinese to the next guy who's speaking in Japanese and nobody could understand one another at all. And so they had to separate into language groups. They had to be separate from one another, and therefore they couldn't come together and continue this great project of eliminating God from the world and from their lives. Now, God had said, be fruitful and multiply. That was his command to Adam and to Adam's descendants. Nimrod violated that by bringing men together and creating a city and creating a focused place where this system could be introduced. And historically, it's very interesting to follow what happened with the religion of Nimrod. There was the mother-child cult that has spread into virtually every religion in the world today. And it was a counterfeit of every aspect of biblical Christianity. And that all surfaced under Nimrod. And this Babylonian system, this mother of harlots, gave birth 
to all of the religious systems, and they all go back originally to what happened in the Table of Nations in Genesis chapter 10. It's a fascinating study. They all have the same idea, all of the world's religions. There's some need within man other than guilt and sin. There's some need within man other than guilt and sin that some religious experience can remedy. It's man trying to climb his way out of his own demise trying to reach up to whatever God he's invented in his mind can help him out of his own demise. That's world's religions. Christianity is just the opposite. It's God reaching down. It's the Lord telling us the truth about ourselves. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The reason we have problems, God says, is because we're sinful by nature. And so God's solution is reconciliation. God's solution is to bring us into one oneness with Him. God's solution is to deal with the sin that separates us between ourselves and Him. God's solution is to give us new life by which we can live. Instead of being dead in our trespasses and sins, he makes us alive through the resurrection, life, and power of Jesus Christ. God reaches down to us and rescues us out of our sin and death and guilt and shame, and he does it through his son, Jesus Christ. All of the world's religions, having man in whatever feeble place he's in, trying to reach up to pull whatever version of God he has down to himself. And thus it's always a counterfeit, an opposite fake from biblical Christianity. And that's what we've had throughout the ages. And it will culminate with this mother of harlots in the tribulation period. And if you look at verse 6, it tells us that this woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Speaking of the death of many, many Christians who were killed throughout the ages for their testimony and for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is her history. She has a history of killing believers in Christ. Eventually, within the Roman government, Christians stopped being killed for refusal to worship Caesar since Constantine changed the whole system of government and made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. But the focus then became heresy. Those that were heretics were condemned and killed. And heresy was determined by the religious system that was in power. So if you disagreed with the religious system that was in power, you were tried and convicted as a heretic, and eventually you were martyred. And this woman is drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So John is going to have the mystery of this woman and beast explained to him. In verses 7 through 13, we see 
how the beast was empowered by this woman. In verse 7, the angel said to me, John is writing here, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Now this is intended to clear things up here, but it's pretty complicated. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Well, to simplify it, I guess it is pretty simple in one sense. The beast arises out of hell. He ascends out of the bottomless pit, verse 8. And when he's judged, he'll be sent right back to that place. He'll go to perdition. That's easy to understand. The beast comes up out of the bottomless pit. He's sent into perdition following his judgment. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says the same thing. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So Antichrist revealed, Antichrist judged, Antichrist goes into perdition, Antichrist destroyed by the brightness of the coming of Christ. That's the story of verse 8. Verses 9 and 10. Here is the mind which has wisdom. So I guess if we can figure this out, that means we have a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Okay, that's going to be clear. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. And no matter how many times I've studied this, no matter how many times I've read it through and thought it through, every time I read it new, I always have the same reaction. Huh? (laughs) Well, the seven mountains, the seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sits, verse 9. That, I think, is pretty clear. The city that is set on seven hills or mountains has always been known as Rome. A.T. Robertson quotes Virgil, Horace, Ovid, Cicero, and a number of others that have said the same thing throughout history. So the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, but not only seven mountains, Rome, on which the woman sits, but there are also seven kings. So the woman is sitting on seven mountains. That gives her primary geographical location. And she's sitting on seven kings, which gives her primary geopolitical location. Now, the tendency here for interpreters is to look at verse 10 and try to identify kings as individuals. We try to look through history and find uh, seven kings, five of which have fallen, five of which was alive at the time that John was writing, and the other 
excuse me, five of which had fallen, one was alive at the time that John was writing, and one was yet future to John. And he only continued a short time, and then eventually the beast would become one of the seven, making himself the eighth. Looking for an individual to fulfill this. I think an easier solution is the solution that is uh, presented by David Hawking in his commentary on this passage. He isn't convinced that the seven kings refer to individual Roman rulers. And with good reason. It doesn't adequately explain the seventh head, and it also doesn't jive well with Daniel's prophecies in chapters 2 and 7, which you can read later. What Hawking believes, and I think makes a lot of sense, is that instead of using the word king to describe what is happening in verse 10, we use the word kingdom to describe what is happening in verse 10. It fits the Old and New Testament prophecies better. So this is what it looks like. The beast with seven heads represents world government throughout human history in seven phases. So up until the time that John was alive, there had been five world empires that had controlled the world. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, and Greece. The world empire that existed in John's day was what? The Roman Empire. And there hasn't been a true world-dominant empire since Rome sort of fizzled out in the 7th century. This sixth head or empire, the Roman government under this view, received the fatal wound and will be brought back to life as the seventh empire of the world, which will not last long. And out of this seventh empire comes the eighth empire of the world, which would be the final form of the world government under Antichrist. Now, to me, that makes sense because it fits the history and it fits... Uh, what Daniel is writing about in his prophecies. But you can think that through. Basically, the argument comes down to whether or not the kings are referred to as individual kings or whether the kings should refer to kingdoms. That's the crux of the argument on both sides. Now, the ten horns, we know, verses 12 and 13, are kings of kingdoms who receive their power from the Antichrist. Let's read. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. So the ten horns are, are in this case, kings of kingdoms. Antichrist enlists them into his service, so to speak, and they receive power from him. But verse 13 says they also give their power and their authority back to the beast, back to the Antichrist. And Daniel 7 again speaks about these things and about how three of these kings fall, and he assumes the position of the three fallen kings and becomes the eighth, and he's the little horn of Daniel. And I'm sorry for confusing you there, but you just have to read Daniel 7 to get the picture of what's going on here, the whole chapter. 
The point is that Antichrist receives power that he has, authority to rule and reign, from the kings that are ruling on the earth at the time that he comes to power. And that it's mutual, it's reciprocal. They give to him his power, he gives to them their power, they're coming together under a one-world system. That's the idea. Yet future. Tribulation period stuff. And then we see the conflicts of the beast, verses 14 through 18. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. So the conflicts of the beast, the very first conflict is against the Lamb. The Lamb here, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Identified as the Lamb in Revelation 5, the one who sits on the throne, the one who has the authority to loose the seven-sealed scroll, it's the Lamb. So the Antichrist makes war, and his kings make war against the Lamb, the long war against God. And then he said to me, verse 15, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire, for God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So this is very interesting, an additional point of emphasis. The ten horns, these ten kings, ruling with Antichrist, end up hating the harlot. So how does this all jive? How does this all work? Well, the harlot comes to power at the beginning of the tribulation period. That's when she's most prominent. And she's influenced the whole world to embrace this one world religious system, and apparently it lasts for about three and a half years. Towards the end of the three and a half years, these kings that are with Antichrist are becoming increasingly agitated with this woman. And they come to hate the woman and resent the woman. And so they reject the woman as having any influence over them at all. They get rid of the one world religious system. They throw it away. What replaces the one world religious system? It's the new religious system under Antichrist. It's the one that the false prophet is involved with. It's the one that Antichrist himself is the center of. It's the worship of the beast. So instead of worshiping in this one world religious system that has been rejected by the kings, now Antichrist himself is being worshipped and the false prophet is heralding that worship throughout the world. Culminating in the middle point of the tribulation period, uh, an event that is called the abomination of desolation, where the Antichrist is able to make an image to himself through the false prophet, and the whole world will marvel after the beast and will begin to worship the beast. You say, what? This is so just bizarre. Well, is it that bizarre? And you think about what's going on, the religious momentum in the world today, with Christians on the, on the earth today. 
the many, many millions of believers that there are all over the world today that are testifying to the truth of Jesus Christ. And even with the presence of believers here. And remember, we are called, what? The light of the world and the salt of the earth. Even with as much light as biblical Christians are shedding on the culture, and even as much salt as biblical Christians are presenting to prevent the the putrefaction of the culture, even with those things, still this religious momentum, this worship of many gods and all religions are the same, it's gaining momentum very, very rapidly. Now what will happen when the church is gone? What happens when the church is removed? Well, what happens when the church is gone and when the church is removed, there will be nothing keeping this from blooming into full fruition. The harlot becomes the harlot that is referred to here in Revelation 17 and all of her inglorious power. That's what will happen. So you have the scenario, the rapture of the church. Jesus comes as he promised he would to receive those that believe in himself back up into heaven. We're waiting for that moment. It could happen any time. When the rapture occurs, after the rapture occurs, at some point, Antichrist makes an agreement with the Jews in Israel. A seven-year treaty is signed. A treaty of great promise that's going to get everyone very excited. Finally, peace. And we're heading in now to the age of peace. And at that time, because the church is gone, the rapture has taken place, there is nothing to hold back. The flood of evil and the flood of lies and false religious systems. These things just really come to the surface like we can't even imagine. And the whole world is just amazed by what's going on under the religion of this harlot. And then, of course, at the end of the first three and a half years, the ten kings hate the harlot. They don't want that system anymore. They reject the harlot. And in the harlot's place comes the worship of Antichrist himself. And, of course, then it's only three and a half years until Jesus returns and throws the beast into perdition, like we said earlier. Now, one of the questions that comes up here at this point and that I get asked every once in a while concerning these concepts, because Rome is identified in history as the city that sits on seven hills, is the woman the Roman Catholic Church. And my response to that question is, I don't believe so. And I'll tell you why. I don't think it's the Roman Catholic Church because of the fact that that's too narrow of a view. The woman is going to represent every false religious system that goes back to Nimrod in Genesis 10. And it's going to be inclusive of all faiths and exclusive of no faiths except biblical Christianity. And that's a lot bigger than any system of Roman Catholicism. It's going to take on a shape that is given some form here in the chapter. The problem of Islam. 
1.2 billion Muslims. The problem of Hinduism and Baha'ism and Confucianism and Buddhism and all of the other religions of the world as they'll just meld right into this system of the of the harlot very easily and it will become one system whose headquarters is in Rome as far as location wise and its influence is geopolitical I think just identifying it with the Roman Catholic Church would be a mistake. It's too limiting and too narrow. And by the way, there are many, I don't know how many, true believers in Jesus Christ within the Roman Catholic Church. And when the rapture of the church takes place and all of those true believers in Jesus Christ who are within the Roman Catholic Church are taken out, then even the Roman Catholic Church will take a different shape, different than its shape that it has now. So, very difficult, I think, to identify it completely, although there are tendencies. Pope John Paul VI had these tendencies to bring all these religions together. They'd have Sikhs and Buddhist monks and Hindu priests and all kinds of different heads of religions praying together at the Vatican in massive prayer meetings. Interesting. So, intense stuff here, this chapter. Next week we look at the city of Babylon from a different perspective. It will be more an emphasis on the commercial Babylon. Well, let's just stop there before you get too close to closing your Bibles. You can hear movement here. <laughs> A lot of deception going on today. And the only way to avoid deception, remember Jesus said that if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. The only way to really avoid deception today is to remain in the truth. And the truth is found in the 66 books of the Bible. I'm going to read a quote from a contemporary church leader in a book that has been often read by many. He says, the Christian faith is mysterious to the core. It is about things and beings that ultimately can't be put into words. Language fails. And if we do definitively put God into words, we have at that very moment made God something God is not. Doesn't that sound, ooh, just, you know. Let's light a candle and enjoy that thought. The problem with the thought is that God himself has definitively put who he is into words. That's what the Bible is. 
And to say that we can't know the meaning of words and therefore can't really understand who God is and to try to do that is making God something that he's not is really a slam against the Bible and against God's relationship with us. Not only has God revealed himself in words in the 66 books of the Bible, but he's revealed himself to us in the word that became flesh to dwell among us. His final expression, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, we don't have to be unclear about what's true. It's very clear what's true. But we need to embrace it. Test everything. Measure it by the scripture. Hold the scripture in high esteem in your minds and hearts and make sure you read it every day. Because if we don't keep our nose in the book, we'll forget what's written in the pages of the book. Our memories are very, very <laughs> feeble. I can forget simple things like Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's important to stay in the book. Not because we have to and not because it's some religious requirement, but because we get to and because this is the way we stay close to the truth. It's God's word. So, the only way to avoid deception is to remain in the truth, and the only way to avoid drunkenness, this is going to sound real simple, is to remain sober. <laughs> if you're sober, you're not drunk. Right? How do you stay spiritually sober? Again, in the book, filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we see things rationally and rightly and truly and as they are. In today's world, in what many would call church, the core of what Christianity is, is being challenged. In pulpits today across America, the commitment to an inspired, infallible Bible is being challenged. In pulpits across America today, and even in some parts of the world, trust in the work that Jesus Christ did for us at Calvary is being challenged. Why is the death of Christ important? It's more important that I experience Jesus than, I is, than it is for me to believe in his death for me. It's more important to have him as a model, a way I can live life and make a, a greater success out of my life than it is for me to trust in the finished work that was accomplished for me at the cross. That's what's being said. I'm not saying those things. Please don't. I'm, not, I'm quoting what's being said. If you take Jesus, the historic, biblical Jesus, out of Christianity, you don't have Christianity. If you take the inerrant, inspired Bible out of Christianity, you don't have a basis for truth. So what is it that the devil attacks? He attacks the Bible, and he attacks Jesus Christ. I'm going to show a little clip that has to do, again, with this contrast between Christianity and the religions of the world. It's so simple, but I love it. 
It's called The Man Fell in a Hole. And how's this guy that's in this hole going to get out of this hole? So let's just watch the clip and see how it happens. That pretty much sums it up. I was in a hole. I couldn't get myself out. The Lord Jesus did that for me. You were in a hole. And God has gotten so many of you out. Through Jesus Christ climbing down into the hole. 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He became what we are, that he might suffer and die to take our place in judgment so that we, by the Spirit of God, could become what he is. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. If you're here this morning and you haven't made that commitment, all I can tell you is be reconciled to God. He has made the move toward you. He sent his son. He said ahead of time he was going to send his son. The prophets testified what he would be like, what he would accomplish for us where he would be born, how he would die, that he would rise from the dead, that he would be a Jew, that he'd come from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David the king. All of these things prophesied of Jesus Christ, and then Jesus came to fulfill them. And the reason he did is because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And if you've not yet come to him, you're not reconciled to God, but he wants you to be. He loves you that much. He wants you to come to him. He's extending the offer. He has extended the offer, and he'll continue to extend the offer, but it's up to you to decide. It's up to you to make the decision and accept the Lord Jesus Christ on God's terms. I want to invite you to make that decision right now. To make a commitment to Jesus. To be reconciled to God. So I would just, without a lot of fanfare or whatever, would you just stand right now, right where you're seated?
I want to commit my heart to Christ. God bless you, sir. Praise the Lord. God bless you. God bless you. Three brothers, three new guys coming in. Amen. God bless you guys. Anybody else this morning? What I want you guys to do is pray out loud, repeat after me, and then I'm going to have you come up and talk with Pastor Vince over here. He's going to be coming up and sharing some things with you, giving you some literature, okay? You pray this prayer after me out loud. Lord, thank you for dying for me. I believe, Jesus, that you paid for my sins. and that you rose from the dead. I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I need forgiveness. Come into my life. Change me, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Can you guys come on forward here? Let's stand together, shall we?